Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Also, for those of you joining us online, hey, welcome back. Uh, We're actually taking a break from our normal sermon series that we've been in on the wisdom literature. And today we're going to be talking uh, from a passage in the book of Ephesians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And uh, today, the title of today's sermon is A Damn Good Story. Can I hear you say A Damn Good Story? story. Yes. And uh, forgive me if damn in the lexicon of your family or whatever might be a little bit kind of, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Yes. uh, But yeah. A darn good story. You can say that as well. (laughs) There we go. So let me read for us in the book of Ephesians. This is what it says. It says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. I mean, isn't this prayer so beautiful? The vision of this prayer to be filled, overflowing, brimming with the love of God. Now it says this, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, can I hear you say immeasurably more? Yeah, that's right. Immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. I mean, what a beautiful vision, basically. He's basically saying to the God who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Now, keep in mind this. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. And in the early church, Christianity was just this small little kind of movement that was like this offshoot movement that was in the shadow of Rome and in the history of all of the different kinds of religious expressions that there were, Christianity was this nothing type of group. And so can you imagine Paul's writing this letter to this little church in Ephesus, and he's talking about this magnanimous vision of what God could do, even in the midst of small beginnings. Now, uh, if you know anything about what's happening right now at Hope Brooklyn, Hope Brooklyn, as well as around the city, a lot has happened to our city. So I myself, I'm the pastor of Hope Midtown, which is uh, a church in Midtown Manhattan, and I've been serving as a transitional pastor here at Hope Brooklyn. And what's been amazing is that God's doing stuff in this community, despite our lead pastor and our founding pastor, Russell Joyce, along with his lovely family, they felt called to leave, and they went over to Oregon um, in April of this year. And we've been in this kind of in-between season. You know, and oftentimes what happens... uh, uh, not only in personal lives, but in the, the kind of the story of organizations and churches is there are always these seasons where it feels a little bit anxiety driven, like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Um, are we going to make it? And you can imagine the church in Ephesus is also in a season like that where they're kind of like, we're this small little thing. And here, Paul is basically presenting this magnanimous vision of God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Uh, in fact, Paul, as he's writing that letter, I'm, I'm guessing that he, could, he couldn't have even thought that 2,000 years later that there'd be this Korean-American guy who grew up in Los Angeles who moved to New York City in September 5th, 2001, right before 9-11, to somehow have my own journey in New York City, to somehow all that's happened with the Hope Churches, which you'll hear about in a little bit, and then for me to actually be standing in front of a congregation of people whose backgrounds come from many different t- 
tongues, tribes, and nations, that together that we'd be here also talking about these very words that he would write, that God can do immeasurably more than anything we can ask or imagine. Now, I'll be honest, as a pastor in Midtown, uh, during COVID, uh, the past 18 months have been brutal, excruciating. Um, in fact, I lamented myself whether or not, you know, the city would ever come back. And if you guys recall, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot written, uh, tons of digital ink written about how the demise of New York was just around the corner. Does anyone remember that? Yeah, it was basically like people are moving from New York. This is just going to be a shell of itself. All the wealth is coming out of the city. And, you know, and you know what? No, no, I don't want to say anything, but I am. Um, but I remember I was also lamenting because we had tons of people leave and at our Midtown congregation, it was just a really sad moment. So I started this email exchange and I was, uh, I was emailing a pastor who's been a veteran here in the city for many years. And I wrote him a note, just kind of my own sorrow and sadness, and just feeling like, man, I don't know if God, um, you know, what God's doing, and it's been really painful. And so there's a pastor named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, and he wrote me this email, and uh, I I thought I'd read it for you here today. It says, he he wrote this, he wrote, you know, prosperity, growth, and optimism in a city offers a set of real advantages and real disadvantages to church ministry and church planting. But out-migration, economic trouble, and discouragement in a city offers a very different but equal set of advantages and disadvantages. So it would be good to think those out. So he was basically saying like, hey, listen, I know it seems really dire right now, but I just want you to know like uh, there's advantages and disadvantages to the season that we, find, we might find ourselves in. And then he wrote this about his own history because he started a church in the city called Redeemer. And this is what he wrote. I planted Redeemer during a big recession in 1991 and high crime in which people were leaving the city. By the late 1990s, the city was in a go-go prosperity and growth, and I don't think that made it easier to do evangelism and mission. Probably it was harder. Then there was 9-11 and the 2008 recession. In general, the main disadvantages of the hard times is financial, plus a sad loss of, of losing some key leaders, which I would say that we've experienced here at Hope Brooklyn as well as beyond. But the advantages were many. Now, catch this. He says, in general, people were more in need, spiritual, emotional, etc. And I found people more appreciative of supportive community and ministry. That somehow what happens in the midst of hardship is it tethers a community together. And while hard times means fewer people from the USA migrate to, the United, to, to New York City, the young professionals and families, there are always some people who will take their place, like immigrants from other countries. So just hang in there, Drew. God is doing something. Uh, now, of course, it was hard for me to see that because uh, right after that, I was like, well, Tim, can you send us some money to help us in our efforts? You know, I'm like, right, can you do something or, you know, but basically what he was saying is, yeah, like in hard times, I mean, but this is the thing, right? This is what the Christian faith was made of. Uh, you know, this is the thing about faith. And if you're not from a faith background, welcome. So glad you're here, right? Faith is only uh, compelling if it actually stands up during the difficult times. Right, because everyone, when things are going swimmingly well, like it's awesome, whatever worldview or um, kind of perspective on life that you might hold, but it's really, it's in those times when we're down in the dumps when we feel like, man, this seems absolutely hopeless. That's when really the sturdiness or the strength of faith really comes to the fore. And this is the kind of faith that Paul, when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, I mean, he's basically saying, hey, listen, to the God who's able to do immeasurably more. I mean, so much more that I can't even fathom what God can do because that's how big and powerful this God is. 
And, and so today, what I thought I would do is I thought I would just share this story of kind of my own journey, but I'd also, you know, as kind of the founder of the Hope family, as well as kind of how that flows into the story of Hope Brooklyn, but also I do that kind of couched in this idea of whenever we're in tough situations, what does that actually do to a community? Uh, Victor Turner, who was uh, a, a British um, uh, anthropologist, he actually studied different uh, passage, uh, rites of passage that uh, cultures in Africa would go through. So young boys that would end up being kind of going through this rite of passage and then becoming uh, part of the, the community. And so he outlines this one process that would happen, uh, you know, as he studied these cultures and how do these young boys go from being boys to becoming men, you know? And, uh, and so he, he's, what, one of the things that he noticed is that, again, the men were generally hunters and gatherers and then the women were basically uh, caretakers of the home. And he said, in these tribal cultures in Africa. And one of the things he noticed is that the boys would grow up with their moms in, you know, kind of in this domestic area. But then there would come this rite of passage. And a rite of passage was basically this experience that these young boys would go through to actually kind of uh, have them pass from this moment from being young boys to becoming men. And so this passage entailed, uh, they would gather, all the men would actually gather around all the, the young kind of 11, 12-year-olds together, and they would gather around, and they would basically tell them, here is your rite of passage. Uh, now, obviously, I'm summarizing this, you know, the studies that he would do, but it's basically, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to gather around, and you're going to go into the wilderness, and you're going to go into the wilderness on your own with each other. And then afterwards, we're going to gather together and we're going to talk about what's happened and we're going to gather around a fire. And so basically this process was these young boys who, if you can imagine, their whole experience has been in this domesticated sphere. They're now being pushed into the wild. And it's basically like all they've got is each other, these 11 and 12-year-olds. They're just kind of looking at each other and they're just like, okay, you're, gonna, you're just going to leave us now? Like we've never done this before? And they would be pushed out into the wild. Now, one of the things that Turner observes about what happens during, you know, to those young boys as they're in this process is he calls that time a time of liminality. Can I hear you say liminality? Liminality is this space by which whenever we're in a space where we feel like the kind of uh, the rug is being pulled from under us, that, that space of free fall, that space of like, I'm not sure if I have anything to hold on to. Uh, have you ever been there in your life before? You know, I, I'd say the past 18 months have been that, a sense of liminality, or maybe you've gone through a breakup or an excruciating, painful kind of experience medically, or maybe you, you're just, you know, um, Financially, it's been a really tough time. Or maybe you're in between jobs and, and being unemployed has felt like, I don't know if I have anything to hold on to. That's what liminal space is like. And we've all been there, whether it's in our work life or in our relationships or in our school life or, you know, or if you're like a New York Knicks fan, you know what I mean? Like we've all been there, this feeling of liminality. I'm not sure if we're gonna make it. And maybe even at this church community, we've been there before. See, because this is the experience of these young boys. They're out in the wild. We're like, all we've got is each other. Now, here's what would happen is they, they're in the wild and inevitably they would have to learn how to work together. They would learn how to kind of leverage each other's giftings and lean on one another. Uh, it was incredibly hard and excruciating. They would be running from wild animals, now, one of the things that Turner observes is that during this space of liminality, something would happen to not only each individual, but something would happen to the community of boys. He, he said that this liminal space that these boys would find themselves in, 
because now they were beginning to enter this season where they had to lean on each other for life and death, something happened to their community. And he actually calls the experience of what happens to their community communitas. Can I hear you say communitas? Now, here's what communitas is. Communitas is this experience where communities deepen in a friendship. They are marked by a community that nothing in this world could ever take away. Because what happens to this community, it's not just like, hey, potlucks and picnics and going out for brunches. It's basically like we've been to hell and back, but we've been through it together. And so this is what would happen. He said, you know, like basically the men would finally, they would gather these boys together and they would sit around a fire. And they would ask the question, what have you learned? What was your experience like? And in the midst of those experiences, what these young boys would say is like, oh, man, you're like, that was so crazy. I've never done that before in my life. And, uh, you know, and then one person would chime in and be like, oh, my goodness, you remember when you were so scared because you thought that was a lion and you ran up the tree? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, whatever, dude. You, th- you were afraid of that one little monkey. You know, like it was like they would, they would start making fun of each other. And it was born out of like they've had this experience together. And it's been full of its ups and downs. But because of that experience of being in this sense, this liminal space together, that something has changed the fabric of this community forever. And that experience of being able to tell stories of what it was like, those ex- the experience of t- telling the stories of even laughing at ourselves and being like, wasn't that crazy? It was communitas. It was this deepened sense of community, of mission, that together we've been through hell and back. And here we are. And it was only after going through that experience that this community would know what it means to lead into the next season. This idea of communitas. You know, in many ways, I think that kind of that, the imagery of liminality and communitas is really what's happening to our church right now, this community. Now, some of you might be new, and you're like, I'm not ready for a rite of passage right now. I just wanted to check out the community. I checked out the website, and here I am. So let me get out of here as fast as I can. Now, I get that, you know. because But here's the thing. For those of you who have moved to the city recently, or maybe you've been here, and um, you're kind of just investing yourself into a church community, here's what I imagine. I imagine that you, you're looking for something more than simply kind of the stories of just your own personal kind of self-advancement and, you know, progress or whatever else. And the reason, perhaps, that you, you, you actually came by here today is because there's this longing for you for something deeper, for, dare I say, communitas, for being in it with people, you know, for, for being able to be part of something bigger than yourself, for whatever season that we've been in, like all of the kind of the empty promises that this city has had to offer, that you're longing for something more. And really the invitation for us as we look at kind of the future of this church and beyond is, would you join this something else? Would you join this communitas experience? Would you want to join and be part of something, of building something together to be marked that the story of your life, that while you're here in the city, now I know that some of you will leave one day, some of you will go to... Texas. I don't know why there's so many people going to Texas. Some people, Florida, wherever. Rachel, please don't go to Texas, Rachel. I mean, please. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're, you know, like, I, like whatever your story might be, what if the story of your life in New York City, in your time in Brooklyn, was not just like, oh, yeah, I did the New York thing, and I got to check out all these brunch spots, and it was so amazing, and Brooklyn is awesome, Brooklyn for life. 
I'm moving to Palm Beach, you know? Like, what if the story was, oh, you'll never believe it. During the time that I lived in Brooklyn, I was part of this community. That wasn't just a community of potlucks and getting together and hanging out and checking out all these different places, but it was a community that made an absolute difference in the city that we lived in. That it was, this, it was a community where, man, we saw blind people healed. We saw the lame walk. We saw the power of God poured out in such a, a phenomenal way that young people in droves became captivated by the story of Jesus in such a significant manner that it changed us and it marked us forever. This was a place where marriages were healed, where kids were born and, and celebrated as family. What if we could be part of that kind of story? The kind of story that, yeah, it's, it's different than just, oh yeah, I did New York and I liked it. But no, we were part of seeing God do something so immeasurably more. You see, because that's the invitation of what faith is like. Faith is basically entering into liminal spaces. We've been there, right? We've been in these spaces where we've been haunted by all the death and sorrow and sadness that we've experienced over the last 18 months. But what if this was now the, the time of our greatest opportunity to meet God in a significant way? I mean, how many of us, like if I were to ask you this question, each one of us personally as well as collective, if I were to ask this question, hey, like, tell me about your experience in New York. Do you want it to just be like everyone else's experience? Do you just want it to be, you know, kind of you've, you've done the New York thing? Or do you want something extraordinary? Do you want the experience of being part of something where years later we'll tell the stories of, man, that was the place where my brother, like, got clean. That was the place where our heart for the hurting and the broken. Like we partnered with the local elementary school and we made such a difference in the lives, especially of disadvantaged kids from backgrounds that are much different than ours. What if this could be the space where we could say that was the place where I met my spouse? I thought I'd get more of a reaction there, but I didn't get, I didn't get anything. I, don't, I guess there's not as many single people here or whatever, but you know, like... Um, Liminality and communitas. In many ways, that's what New York is like, though. New York is just one big liminal city. It's been like that, right, even before the pandemic, and it's even more so now. And I trust that the reason why you showed up today is because, yeah, you're longing for a little bit more. Now, I'll just share briefly my own story of liminal space. My own story was um, I was a pastor, actually, for 10 years at a church in Queens uh, at a church called New Life Fellowship. And it was a fairly large church. And uh, my dream was to become like the next lead pastor at the church. And so sure enough, the founding pastor, uh, he had actually invited me into this process to explore being the next lead pastor. Uh, the only problem was the timing of when that was all going to happen was uh, in 2010, I went through a pretty significant season of depression. Um, and then in 2011, basically all the announcements were going to be made and so on and so forth. But uh, in February of 2011, I actually submitted my resignation. Uh, at the church that I worked at for 10 years. And the reason why I submitted my resignation is because, like I mentioned, in 2010, I went through a pretty significant season of depression. And during that season, I realized there were two things that were keeping me at the church. Uh, one was, um, I, I remember, like, while I was depressed, one night I woke up my wife, and I was like, hey, 
Tina, you know, and she, she woke up and she's like, what, what's going on? And I said, uh, you know, if you had a more lucrative job, I wouldn't be stuck here. And then she slapped me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but <laughs> she probably should have. But I remember she was like, what? She goes, first, don't ever talk to me like that again. And then she goes, uh, is that what you believe about God? That he's small and limited by money. Go back to sleep. <laughs> then she goes, she passes out, and then I cry, you know? <laughs> and I realized one of the things that were keep, was keeping me at this church was, was money. And it's not like I made a lucrative amount of money at this church. Um, it was basically like that was the only job I had as an adult aside from being a, a janitor um, at the graduate school that I was at. So, like, for me, like, I realized that money was something that was keeping me in that position. The second thing that was keeping me in the position was prestige. Again, it had become a fairly... Uh, well-known church in Queens, and it was a large church with a massive budget and a growing reputation, not only in the city, but also uh, around the world. And so for me, it was kind of like, oh my goodness, this is like the epitome of my largest dreams as it relates to my own vocation and profession. And so one of the things that I realized was that uh, if money and prestige were the things that were keeping me at the church, these are very bad reasons to be a pastor. Now, how many of you guys know that money and prestige are bad reasons to be a pastor? Yeah? There we go. All right. Uh, some of you didn't raise your hand, which is kind of odd. But um, <laughs> so, so I ended up um, resigning from my position, and, uh, and then I got more depressed. <laughs> Has that ever happened? You think like, okay, I'm going to make this bold step, and things are going to get better. So I end up resigning, and then I feel even more depressed. Uh, you ever felt that way? Like you've hit rock bottom, and then there's another rock bottom, and oh, gosh, it's awful. Liminal space, right? And so here I am now. I'm in liminal space. I get more depressed. And one of the reasons why I'm so depressed is because one, uh, it was my first foray into unemployment. Now, here's the thing that I used to think that unemployment was about money, which it is. And I think coming from an immigrant background, like money was very big, like making sure that we have enough you heard my story with my wife, Tina, and how I was kind of blaming her for all this stuff. And now, um, but one of the things that, for me, that occurred during my season of unemployment was um, just how much it meant to my identity. I didn't realize how, how hard it was, like my sense of identity. So I would basically, uh, you know, people would ask me, hey, what do you do, Drew? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a pastor. They're like, where? I'd be like, why can't be so personal, dude? Can't you just ex ex accept that I'm a pastor, you know? And so I realized there was this kind of defensiveness about like, and I realized what it, was, what, what it was touching upon was this sense of how my own identity was so wrapped up in my job. And when that was now stripped away from me, after having been in this role for 10 years, and like the fact that I couldn't like puff out my chest and say, I'm a pastor, and I'm a pastor, oh, I, I knew my fellowship, you know, like because I couldn't say that, like all of a sudden I felt so small. And uh, Tim Keller actually has this phrase where he says, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I remember being in the season where I, I honestly felt like as, as great, as, as hard of a season as it was looking back, as painful as it was, it was one of the best seasons of my life. Why? Because I realized, even as a professional clergy person, how much of my own sense of identity and self-worth was found in my position and in my title. And when that was stripped from me, I realized all I had was Jesus. And the question for me was, is Jesus enough? But really, that's the good news of the gospel, right? That our identity is not found in our titles, in our professions, or in our ambitions. 
And so here I was now going through this season, this painstaking season of what's next. Now, while I was there, I remember I, we, my wife and I, so we sublet our apartment in New York. We ended up going to Asia because we're Asian. And so we went to China, we went to Japan, and then we ended up in Seoul, Korea. And while we're in Seoul, Korea, we're staying with Tina's grandmother there, and we're just praying and asking God. And I'm going through my own kind of sob session around like my own journey. And here I was, um, and we're in the mega church capital of the world. And as I'm wrestling with just kind of what God is doing, I remember Tina, like God telling us like, hey, I want you to die to the dream of New York. Because for me, New York was everything. I never imagined leaving. And so here I was, and God's basically, I want you to die to this dream. And so Tina and I, we basically started to outline, okay, well, what are our values that we want to be about for the rest of our lives? We said, we want to be in an international city somehow. And we want to serve the urban poor. Like those are our non-negotiables. So I asked my wife, I said, so where would you want to live? And she basically said, well, here are the cities, London, New York City, or San Francisco Bay Area, uh, or Vancouver. And I remember just like saying, those are the most expensive cities in the world. Like, are you sure? Like, I don't have a job right now. Like, why those? And she's just like, listen, I know that, you know. And so during that time, I was wrestling with church as well. And I remember reading this blog post by this guy named Mike, Mike Breen. And one of the things he outlines is that the Western church has been marked by three things often. He, and he writes, the Western church has been marked by a culture of consumerism, that most people, when it comes to church, they come really to consume and they evaluate based on how good the sermon is, how good the music is, and da 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 He said, it's a culture of consumerism. The second thing he said is a culture of competition. Churches are out to like outcompete one another and our church is cooler than your church, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third thing he said is it's a culture of celebrity where oftentimes it's, it's focused on one person and this one person is basically like makes the thing go. And one of the things that uh, he writes is that because of that, like really the Western church needs to unlearn a lot of these cultural elements. So during that time, I'm like wrestling and I'm writing down and I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe God, maybe what we could do to buck against that trend is we could start a church that instead of growing into this big mega thing that was centered around one individual or had this one kind of family that's like at the top of the pyramid, what if it could be like a family of churches where together, um, if a church gets too large, what we do is we send people out to different areas of the city and each of those churches could be led locally and each of those churches could be expressions of the hands and feet of Jesus in their own neighborhood and region. So we had this vision and uh, I remember like sharing with Tina, like maybe this is what God is calling us to um, and then we found out that Tina was pregnant. Um, so I was like, you know what? Um, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, like I, we're at her grandma's place and like, and of course, guys, listen, I know how it happened, guys. Okay, I'm just, that's a rhetorical question, right? How did this happen? But anyhow, so we, and so all of a sudden I'm just like, you know what? Forget about starting this new kind of church or whatever. We just, I just need a job. Shortly thereafter, there was a church, a, a large church out in the Bay Area of California that contacted me and was basically like, hey, we heard that you are in this in-between season, this liminal space, and we think you'd be the perfect candidate to join our church as the lead teaching pastor. And I just remember thinking like, hallelujah, God answered this prayer. I can't believe it. He opened this door. This is what God was doing. He was closing this so I could go to this church that has a nice salary where I can take care of my family. And so basically, here I go. I go into this final interview season with this church in the Bay Area. Now we're in the fall. We're bleeding through savings. My wife is in her second trimester. We're back in New York. And uh, what happens is, I, 
go to the final interview. As I'm flying back, uh, right before I was at the airport, I called up my wife and told her about the interview. And she says, hey, listen, um, I had a dream that God doesn't want us to be there. And I was like, why do you always do this? Like, I don't, like, nah, be quiet, leave me alone, you know. And so I was like, okay, whatever, you know. And so I basically kind of ignored her. And I get back to New York, and the firm that was kind of conducting the whole search and the head elder, I'm in contact with them, and I'm, I'm like, starting to call different friends in the Bay Area. Hey, we're moving to the Bay Area. Like, do you know any doctors? Do you know any places to live, et cetera, et cetera? And um, anyhow, so, uh, on October 10th of 2011, I was reading in Scripture. There's this passage in Psalm 33, and this is what it says. A king is not saved by the size of his army. A war horse is a vain hope for deliverance. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. I remember reading that passage, and I was like, the reasons why I want to move to California are the same reasons why I left New Life. Prestige and financial security, the size of an army. And I wrote in my journal, God, help me to give my life to something where when the story of my life is told, it's a story of hoping in your unfailing love. And I wrote, God, I think you're calling us to start a church in New York. That same afternoon, that church from California called, the head elder called me and said, hey, Drew, we've just been praying and we just have this sense that God has a different assignment for you. And for me and Tina, it was kind of the final confirmation we needed that we would say, okay, I guess we're starting a church. Now, the name of Hope Church comes from Psalm 33, 18. A king is not saved by the size of his army at war horses of vain hope for deliverance, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And when we first started the church, the vision of our church was not to be this super cool church, super, you know, uh, great Instagrammable church. It was what if we could cultivate a community that in a city that is frankly full of kings and queens and princes and princesses and all of the markings of the reason why this church, you know, this city could be called one of the greatest cities in the world. What if, what if we became the kind of community that wasn't known for how gifted and talented and beautiful and well put together we were, but what if we could be known as a community of people from various backgrounds whose hope was in his unfailing love? That when the story of our lives were told, that the story we told was like, oh my goodness, meet this person, this person has a background in finance, or hey, meet this person, this person's an artist, or this person is you know, in theater or whatever else, you know? not that those are bad things, but what if the markings of our community could be, we are a people who are broken people with scars. If you guys have known Russell Joyce's story at all, you know that his story was so marked by his own scars. But we are a people who hope in God's unfailing love. Now, Hope Brooklyn is part of that same story of trying to be a community here in New York that enters into liminal spaces and is invited into communitas, into being a space where we can be a people who in the midst of whatever pain and brokenness that one day we'll look back and say like, this is what God did in, this, in spite of some of the most trying, most difficult circumstances that we've been in.
He hasn't just built a community. He's built communitas. Now, I said at the, top of this, uh, at the top of this sermon, I've probably been speaking too long. I don't even know what time it is. Sorry. Uh, um, that the title of this sermon was called A Damn Good Story. And, uh, sorry, darn good story. <laughs> sorry if I had to go. And uh, one of the reasons why is because, like, I mean, the story of Paul when he's writing immeasurably more, the story of each one of us, the, the, the idea is that God, in the midst of whatever circumstance you might find yourself in today, that this is what we believe about God, that in the midst of our deepest depression, in the midst of unemployment, in the midst of feeling like I've got no future, you know what God says? He says, no, 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 no. I'm writing a damn good story in your life. That if there are seasons where you feel like, man, you're in the pits or the feelings of where you feel like you're on the outskirts and you feel like there's nothing to tether yourself to, liminality where you feel like you're in freefall, here's what I want you to know, that God is in the business of writing a damn good story. That's why Paul could write to the God who can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And the question for you and the question for me is, will we lean into the story that he's writing you know, I, I was talking to Lim a few weeks ago, and he was telling me his story of his own meeting Jesus. And if you ever have a chance, I'm not going to share your story because I didn't ask for your permission. But uh, you, uh, he's just such an extraordinary story of how he was marked by Jesus and how it changed him forever. And him and Downey and how they met and um, kind of the story of their life. And, you know, it's amazing. Like, God, this is what God does. He brings us these moments in life where he marks us forever. And it's usually in these stories of marking that God changes us forever. And usually those stories of marking don't happen when it's like, hey, I like invested in a bunch of tech stock during the pandemic. You know, like it's not like those moments where things are really great. And if you did that, that's great. God bless you. Uh, praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's really, it's in the moments when it's like, man, I was in the pits God pulled me out. I was going through the darkest valley. And God gave me a new song. Right? Those are the stories that are the most compelling. And those are the stories that God wants to write in your life today. Because here's what God is about. He's about writing damn good stories. And here's the thing, like at Hope Brooklyn, it's like, oh my goodness, Russ and Anna left and we're not back in our, two, you know, PS 261 and all this stuff is happening at our church and people have left and all this stuff is happening. Well, guess what God is doing? He's writing a damn good story. And one day we're going to look back and be like, God, only you could do immeasurably more. Only you could be the one that could heal these relationships and marriages. Only you can be the one that with an outpouring of your spirit could cause a revival in this city that we can look back and say, God, we have leaned in because we believe that you are about writing damn good stories.